0: Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's
1: Terry. All right, we are back. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us, one of our favorite contributors. I just haven't said enough nice things about him lately. So we'll just let his his expertise do the talking for him, Nate Zelensky. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, you never
2: get used to get this treatment. No, well, we're almost three quarters through the year of good treatment. Like, I think we're so far past, we might as well just continue it for the whole year so we can say for one full year I got that amazing introduction. Well, we're going to keep you waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no you know all kidding aside you've been a one of our you know longest contributors to the show you're on every week you cover fishing hunting uh, with your Tightline outdoors and Nate Zelensky sites you just you bring a lot to the show and i may give you a hard time but the knowledge you bring is not only well respected but well received by our listeners
2: i appreciate that terry we uh we all have a passion for the outdoors we love it I can say I live it uh, to every second of my life. So if we can share that and get everybody else out there and make them successful and safe, uh, we're all about it. Hey,
1: before we get into I know you want to talk about where the elk are now and getting to first rifle, but I thought I saw a picture of you with a pretty nice pronghorn.
2: I did, Terry. I tell you, I had uh, an unbelievable opener of pronghorns. So myself and uh, it was great, a great friend of mine who's actually my cameraman on all these hunts, uh, Chris, he had a tag. We went out there, uh, and we had an unbelievable day on two absolute giant pronghorns. So, uh, it, it was, it was fantastic. We probably saw, you know, 40, 50 bucks through the course of the day, uh, harvested two unbelievable bucks. One of the bucks, uh, not mine, <laughs> uh, uh, cameraman Chris. Uh, he shot shot a pronghorn that was just shy at 17 inches. It'll go book with a rifle, uh, absolutely giant. And I shot a great 15-incher. So great, great day on the pronghorn. And honestly, it seems like the success has been kind of statewide on that. Um, obviously, that's a species that, you know, you're not necessarily tied to the rut. You're not necessarily tied to weather. But in general, our, our pronghorn population is thriving. And it seems like it was a very successful year on the pronghorn front. So excited to see that.
1: You know, speaking of weather, this may be a good transition because I know you want to talk about the elk. We talked earlier about fishing with a couple of people and how the fall season hasn't had that more quick transition. Usually we transition to fall patterns. Uh, It's been sporadic. Some places have. It seems to be happening now. We're getting colder weather. Is any of that affecting what you're seeing with the elk?
2: You know, it's, it's great on the elk side. I mean, Terry, honestly, it's just one of those falls I love slower transitions. We talk about that in spring. When we have a slower transition, our springs are notorious from going from, you know, snow, snow, cold, nasty to 100 degrees and booming. Um, and I think the reason that this year has been so epic on the fishing side is we had a nice, slow transition spring. We had high winds, but it really was a mellow spring. It, it warmed up slowly. Our water temperatures warmed slowly, allowed all the spawning of all the fish happened happen nicely. And honestly, Terry, fall fishing has been epic so far, and I think it's because of that. You know, we haven't had any shock We haven't had any, like, mass migrations of fish. It's been a slower migration, which is a lot easy for anglers to keep up on. Um, So, honestly, I I love these slower kind of temperaments going in. It just, it helps all the species slowly move to where they're going and allows the anglers to keep up with them as they're going. Um, And it just really makes for a a good fall. So, I'm loving the weather. And, honestly, Terry, with the weather, you know, I, generally speaking, I kind of like bad weather. You know, it brings on different stuff. But, Right now, our elk are are notoriously um, in full rut. We've seen this for about the last seven to eight years. Obviously, the the increase in hunters during the archery and muzzleloader season in what we consider the prime rut for elk, um, through that pressure, our elk are slowly learning um, to do a, a little bit of a heavier rut in the break between archery and first rifle almost every year we offer anywhere between a 12 and 18 day break on the animals between the archery season and the first rifle season. And over the last seven, eight years, we're starting to see more and more of the animals really kind of peak their rut or their breeding phase on the elk side during that break. So right now, uh, these animals are absolutely bugling, screaming, very vocal, uh, breeding the, the full moon coming, uh, you know, very shortly that's going to help that breeding cycle. So the elk are in full blown gangbusters while they're in that phase, I want the nicest weather possible because it's going to allow these animals to stay in kind of that rut phase, that rut activity for the opener of rifle coming up next Saturday. So I love it for the simple fact that in Colorado, um, our only chance to really hunt elk in the rut with a rifle other than a few very limited tags is when our rut continues into the general first rifle tag. Um, so right now our weather's looking great. We cool off this week, but it's nice. You know, most places it's 50 to 60, lows dropping down into freezing point, but it's no shock. Last year we had a big shock. We had snow that came in uh, and really threw those animals out of that rut the year before we had snow. So it's kind of been the, the theme lately to get a little bit of the snow front, like the Tuesday, Wednesday before that rifle, and it really pulls those big mature bulls away from the cows. You get your immature bulls coming in. But right now, our bulls are in full rut as we speak. And I think with the forecast, I think we're we're warm enough and just kind of mellow enough to where I think at least for the first couple days of this upcoming season, we're going to have rut activity, which is really going to help out those first rifle hunters. Um, I mean, it helps it out simply for the fact, number one, they're going to be bugling. So when these bulls are bugling, obviously it is so much easier to locate elk when they're bugling versus when they're not. So that's number one phase that's going to be fantastic. Number two, when you have a bigger harem, so when you have uh, this, basically it's the third estrus phase of the cows, they're they're in bigger groups. Bulls play the strength of number. So in an early rut phase, first and second wave of the estrus phase, so early September, middle of September, you know, a bull might have, 10, 15, 20 cows, maybe 30 on a big harem, but he has a, a, a smaller group of cows that he breeds, um, you know, as they're willing. And as you start getting into these later phases of the breeding season, they really bulk up their cows. It's all strength and number. So a big herd bull will gather as many cows as possible simply for the fact to, to keep an eye on them, make sure that every cow gets bred. So it's not uncommon to have herds of, you know, 30 to 100, 120. I watched a herd this morning that was about 60 in the group. Uh, so we're really seeing those big numbers. When they've those big numbers, they move slower. It's easier for a bull and 5, six, eight, 10 cows to kind of slink through their woods pretty quickly. When you have, you know, 60, 80, 100 cows type thing, that bull is running around nonstop trying to keep those cows together, trying to herd them up, and it makes them slow down. To where you as a hunter, they're bugling, so they're easy to find. You get up on them. They're not moving as fast. That bull is constantly coming around the cows to try to herd them up, presenting shot opportunities. So I really think this first rifle is going to be huge. So with that said, I would go into this first rifle hunt uh very much kind of with the poise and and concepts of archery hunting. So, you know, really watching your scent, being very quiet, a little more stealthy than a lot of times we are with the rifle hunting, you know, not using ATVs as much, kind of being a little quieter to not interrupt that rut phase. And then I'm getting in the woods earlier than I normally normally would. With a normal rifle tag, you know, you don't need to get out there until you can see. So you, a lot of rifle hunters tend into the woods a little later in the day or later in the morning, I should say. That's where the archery guys will get in the woods, you know, Hours before it gets light to try to locate the animals by sound. So, I'm really going to get in the woods early this first rifle, really listen to those animals, find them, get yourself to where your wind is right, get yourself into shooting position. Uh, So, we're doing a lot of those type concepts in this first rifle hunt, and I think it's going to lead to a very, very successful opener rifle.
1: You know, you talked about um, them being very vocal, and then you talked, of course, about moving quietly. Now, normally during the rifle seasons, we kind of usually suggest people call little or less because it's not as effective. It can even give you away. But with these animals, as vocal as they are, how do you feel about calling right now?
2: Absolutely. You know, the, the the odds of a bull coming into you, uh, I mean, you know, we called a bull in for Mandy a couple of years ago, first rifle. He came in like on a string. But generally speaking, when you have a, a very large harem of cows, the odds of you pulling a bull off the herd is is very unlikely. So honestly, with the calling concepts, we're only calling to either locate an animal or keep that animal talking. Uh, So that is it. So, again, very, very minimal calling. We are calling, but minimal. So, you know, I'm starting off, you know, I'll hike in a ways, get on the ridge, and I'll do one cow call or one very weak bugle. Once I get a response, I mean, I am pretty much done. I am getting myself into position. If I'm in position, I need to kind of just make sure I'm right. I might do one more, but it is definitely not the concept of calling them in. It is calling just enough to keep the animal vocal to where, you know, you're in that right spot. So that's really all it is. So uh, again, too much calling can definitely put them kind of on alert uh, and can ruin some opportunities. So you are only calling enough, uh, to keep these animals vocal, to know where they're at, get yourself in position and get ready to make that shot. And then, like we always say, you know, they, they learn very quickly on this first rifle that bugling is not the safest thing for them. So the the talking, the rut activity goes away very quickly once the guns start going off. So, you know, we always tell hunters, really make the most of the first and second day of this tag, it opens on a Saturday. You know, you're scouting. You're putting all your energy today, tomorrow, throughout the course of this week. But we really encourage hunters to, to you know, play your best hand early off. Because again, once the the guns start going off, you're going to see those mature bulls leaving the cows. You're going to see the vocalization stop. Uh, They know what gets them in trouble. So, again, just to all the hunters out there, do everything you can, scout hard, make the most of uh, the couple days of that season. It's definitely the advice that will help you get more success.
1: You know, with these large harems or large numbers of cows, there's also a large number of noses and ears. you have to be overly concerned with the wind and even sight because somebody's going to make you?
3: That,
2: that's a hundred percent it. You know what I mean? And especially when you're even talking about calling those cows are gonna be looking at you. Um, I mean, to the point where there's a lot of animals, so it's nice because you can see them. But when you get a big harem, they'll spread out. Everybody thinks of them being in a very tight group, but you know when you have a, a harem of. 30, 40, 50, 80 cows, you know, you might have seven, eight, nine bulls. And a lot of those satellite bulls will hang off the herd several hundred yards. So where when you're making your approach with a rifle to try to get close, it's very common to bump into straggling cows, bump into straggling bulls, and that can definitely ruin your opportunity. So that's like I said, we go into it, we go into it kind of with the sneakiness of the archery hunt where very quiet, you know, we're not using the ATVs and the machines that oftentimes we tend to think we can get away with during the rifle season. Um, so we are definitely approaching it with that, that more sneaky, calm, quiet approach, uh, a lot of glassing, a lot of that time spent in the dark toward trying to locate and trying to get ourselves into perfect perfect you know, placement to make that opportunity. But a hundred percent, lots of eyes, lots of noses, and more so just a, a large swath of ground being covered by that elk herd. You might see the bull and everybody gets focused on the bull, uh, when in reality you might have other bulls or, or you know, cows and this and that kind of sp- spread around. And, and for everybody out there harvesting cows, you know there's there's more cow tags in this first rifle season than the bull tags. And I think a lot of people, we get so caught up in hunting bulls, but I'm going to approach cows the same way. If I hear a bull bugling, I am approaching, because obviously if you have a bull bugling bull, you 100% have cows. A bull will not be bugling uh, by himself. When the bugling stops, he might be independent, but if he's bugling, he is a round cow. So even if I have a cow tag, I'm approaching the woods the exact same way uh, because there's going to be great opportunity. You find in a bull, you're going to find cows.
1: I want to switch things up. We've got a couple minutes left. What's
2: going on in the fishing scene? You know, we got a little bit of everything. I know we talked about it last week uh, when Josh called in, but Spinney is closed, which is such an unfortunate situation uh, to boating, but it is open to shore fishing. So we have got some giant trout being caught from shore at Spinney. Uh, Antero is fishing good. It's on the cusp of fishing great. Uh, that water is still very warm at Antero. We've been talking about this. I had a lot of questions this week asked about Antero. Uh, that water temperature right now at Antero is hovering around that 55 degree mark. Um, when fall fishing really peaks, everybody goes by the calendar terry we talk about this all the time everybody's like well first week of october the last year I, I pounded them and people go up there now and they're like how come i'm not doing it the fish don't have a calendar they go by their environment they go by their surroundings and really antero fish is so great in the fall When that water drops below 50, 52, we start seeing some really good increases in activity. That water drops below 50, um, and that's that peak. So 48 to 50 degrees, that's when those trout are absolutely gangbusters. Um, We are close. So we're having great days of opportunity right now, but it's only going to get better. By next weekend is when we're really going to see Ontario starting to fish really well. Same thing goes with 11 miles, so we're so close there. Uh, We are seeing some giant browns, however, coming out of 11 mile, coming out of Ontario. They're in peak spawn right now. Uh, CPW has been involved in a bunch of those fisheries, but huge browns coming out right now. So if you're looking for some browns, they are onshore, they are accessible, and there are some giants right now. So that's a a great opportunity. And then, you know, Terry, as we approach this full moon, This really the the October full moon is such a big deal for the walleye fishermen. Our walleye bite continues to be absolutely incredible. I have to say, Terry, I have seen more big fish uh in the last month or so coming out of, you know, all the fisheries, Chatfield, Cherry Creek, Pueblo, than I have in a long time. Uh my personal success, I'm having the best year I've had in twenty two years on big walleyes. Uh so I've never seen the bite this good. Um, and I can only imagine this full moon is only going to help that. So, uh, you know, we're catching numbers of fish during the day. Uh, the big fish bite is all about low light. So, you know, catching that first couple hours in the morning, those last couple hours in the evening, that low light period is producing some giant walleyes. Uh, so we're excited for there. And Terry, I have to say this week, um, I officially pulled out my ice gear to start getting it ready. So even though we're swamped with fall fishing and, and obviously the hunting in full swing, uh, we are not far from uh, getting ready to start the ice stuff. So everything is happening. Uh, you're just trying to keep up with all of it.
1: Real quick, 15 seconds, what kind of tactics are you using on the walleyes?
2: You know, right now, if I'm going to fish, if it's even a little bit more towards the daytime side, whether it's later in the morning or earlier in the afternoon, I'm jigging wraps and blade baits. And that by far, jigging wraps have been out producing blade baits at all the fisheries, Pueblo, Cherry Creek, and Chapel, but blades are still working. Once it gets dark, it is all about the jerk bait. So stick to those jerk baits in the dark, uh, and it's going to be producing some big fish for you.
1: All right my friend we'll talk to you again very soon. Great great segment Nate. All right, Nate Zelinsky, Tightline Outdoors. Always great stuff. You can find Nate and his crew, you can contact them, they'll share information. They're posting all the time, Tightline Outdoors, And, of course Nate Zelinsky on all the social media. We're going to take a time out. We come back, we're going to be joined by um Jared Rich from Jacks, the Jackson Broomfield, and we're going to talk about uh transitioning to winter with your outdoor gear right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Of course, that uh, <clears throat> bumper music played was on the current EP out from Wickstrom and Dobreth. You can search us at your fav- on internet or at your favorite streaming service. And One of many songs we have out there, we have a new uh, single. We're going to do the photo shoot this afternoon for that. So anyone who listens to our music, I appreciate that. Also, we had a question on the text line. If we're going to cover more on goose, uh, ducks, and pheasants. Um, Texter, if you go back about a week or two, I did a uh, a segment with Brad Peterson. You can find that on denverfan.com by going to my page and looking at the segment podcasts that are on the right-hand side of the page. And we kind of gave an update and a view of what was going on with duck and teal. But we are going to be doing more duck in the next week or two and pheasants also we're going to have ed gorman the biologist in charge of that he's going to be coming out and he will um he's going to be going over the outlook and the areas that are better than others but right now let's go to the phones and joining us from the jackson broomfield is jared rich good morning jared good morning terry how are you i'm doing great you know it's a beautiful beautiful day out we're going to get back in the 70s we had a little shock yesterday of cold weather. But we're going to get back in the 70s for the next few days, but winter is coming. I imagine in a store like Jack's, now Jack's has a couple different stores. They have their outdoor gear and their farm and ranch, and they have some combo stores. You're in Broomfield. That's a combo store. I'll bet you're seeing a lot of changeover on the goods out on the floor from what maybe people would buy in the summer to what they'd buy in the winter. Is that Right.
3: That is correct, Terry. Yeah, that cold weather is a reminder that winter is coming. So we are definitely stocked up here in the store in all of our apartments with lots of new winter stuff coming in. All right,
1: so with that, people are going to be looking for their winter clothing. Probably a great time to probably closing out a lot of summer stuff that you could buy for next year, but they're coming in for winter and and a lot of people are just getting into the outdoors over the last couple of years. Now they're, they're new to understanding, especially in Colorado, the way weather and conditions can change so drastically. So you get a lot of people, especially in the apparel department to come in and they just have a lot of
3: misconceptions about winter gear and equipment yeah, that's pretty common. I mean, people make the mistakes of the comfort mindset that we kind of carry every day, you know, what we're comfortable in here, going to work, driving to the grocery store, things like that, but when we get out in the wild, things become a little bit different. You know, people make a lot of mistakes using the kind of common cotton things that they would wear, whether that's socks, underwear, um, tops and bottoms. You really need to think about moisture management, especially if weather gets into freezing, uh, hypothermia can set in even up to 60 degrees Fahrenheit so you really need to think about staying um, warm and managing uh, sweat and moisture a lot of that comes down to base layers as well as the insulation you choose whether it's synthetic which can breathe I'm sorry warm when wet and some other kind of decisions to make uh, but that's the biggest mistake that people make I think is is changing cotton really we're going to benefit from things like wool and polyester and synthetics that are able to warm when wet.
1: Got a little bit of static on your line, but I think we'll be okay. But you and I talked earlier and I think one of the things that you and I agree on and having done some search and rescue and uh, outdoor preparedness classes myself, we had a saying that cotton kills and you hit on that pretty well. Um, I don't think people realize how badly cotton absorbs and then chills you if you sweat and we're talking about people and on numerous outdoor activities. This could be hunting. It could be hiking. It could be snowshoeing. It could be just a casual walk up the mountains and the weather changes. I know I shared a, uh, uh, an incident with you where I went, I went snowshoeing and just left my cotton breeze on and I preach against that. And then after I was done about a half mile walk to the car they were, I was so cold that Karen had to open the door for me and you shared a hunting story that was very similar, didn't
3: you? Yeah. Well, it's a great example. Um, it doesn't take long for cotton to soak up and if you think what it does, the reason we like it in towels is because it soaks up water and holds on to it. Now, so for example, one of my hunting managers or a surplus manager went hunting in Alaska and he brought a Merino uh, base layer system. But he made the mistake of wearing a cotton t shirt underneath the first day. And in that evening, when it cooled down, he said he immediately got the chills, took off the cotton shirt, put the merino next to skin, and was, war- was warm for the rest of the week. However, that cotton shirt never dried, it stayed wet and intent for the entire trip.
1: Take us through maybe the base, the layers, the two or three or four layers you suggest, and give us a couple brands or ideas of what you have.
3: Perfect. Yeah, next to skin layer is one of the most important. Polyester is really great for moisture management, especially if you have a wick, like a um, a waffle grid fleece or something that's going to allow steam to escape. And more, uh, merino wool is going to be just more comfortable throughout most of your trips, especially out here where it's dry. So most important is that next to skin base layer. Then you're going to want a breathable synthetics like a uh, fleece layer that's going to be able to breathe and be wet and warm, then a puffy layer that's going to block wind and really lock in the heat, as well as an outer shell, whether that's a rain jacket or some kind of snow jacket, that will really help lock everything in. And you may not use all four, well if it gets below zero you probably will, but you could use just the fleece and a protective outer shell or just a puffy and a base layer. I mean, you can always plug and play. And the biggest thing out here in Colorado that people underestimate is layers. The weather changes fast out here and it changes often. So you have to be flexible in being able to do smear warmer gear. If you're building heat and moving as in hiking and hunting, is a good example where you may be stalking prey for a couple hours and building up sweat and heat, but then you may sit tight in the snow for a couple hours next. So you want to be able to balance for both moving and being stationary.
1: Now, the Jack stores have a great variety of this type of clothing. I understand you have a big sale coming up. Is some of that involved? And share some of the brands you carry.
3: Absolutely. So especially in the apparel side, we are probably the best source for outdoor gear here in Colorado. We are the largest uh, family-owned Colorado gear store. So we have... Everything from Patagonian Cool to new brands like Fjallraven, Raven, Rad, and Big Agnes Clothing. It's going to offer great warm, adventurous options. And so, what are going to have?
1: I think we lost Jared on that. Jared, did we lose you finally? Is that what happened? Uh,
3: no, I'm still here. I apologize for the connection. Do you have me? Yeah, we got you now. All right. My apologies for that connection. I was just saying that we have new brands coming in like Fjallraven, Prana, Cool, And then in footwear, we're gonna have Bluntstones, Sorel Boots coming up. We even have Socktober for Smartwool Socks coming up. So there's doing a big promotion on Smartwool Socks. And then as well, we're gonna have Carhartt, um Gobi Heated Jackets, which is another new product for Jacks where we have battery heated jackets and vests, as well as their camp chairs. And as well in camping, something that we have coming out now is the cross-country ski selection, as well as our snowshoes. And a fun reminder, we do do rentals for cross-country and snowshoeing as well.
1: All right. You know, you mentioned the smart socks, smart wool. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, wife, my wife and producer, Karen, has. I got her some of those for Christmas, and now that's all she wears. She has just fallen in love. And I'm talking year-round. I mean, in the summer when your feet would maybe sweat Wears them and they're more comfortable, and certainly in the winter. And they're they're not heavy. And you people, you got to find if you're too many people think think still think of wool is that old wool blanket, but that's not what it's like at all, is it?
3: Not at all. It's really soft. It's you like them more than your cotton pair of socks. They become more comfortable, and really the comfort level is moisture management. And I have a bunch of kids, so inevitably when I leave for work, they've soaked the bathroom floor. If I have wool socks, those smart wools, it immediately pulls the water off my foot and I'm comfortable. Polyester socks, they get cold and clammy. I may change my socks and cotton socks. Forget it. They'll be wet all day. So it really is. They're super comfy and amazing.
1: All right, my friend. That's all great information. And you can find this big sale coming up at all the Jack stores. You're at the Broomfield store. If if people want to talk to you, thank you so much. for. Thank you. All right. thank Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Jared. Take care. Bye-bye. Jared, Richard, Jared Rich from the Broomfield Store. We had a little bit of a bad connection, but I think most of it came to Great information. We're going to take a quick time out. and we come back, Dan Swanson is going to join us in place of Chad Lachance for Fishful Thinker, And he's got some on-the-water reports, plus how to use fall techniques and how the new electronics fix that. I'm Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fans. You're just a tear out my eyes not I cry myself to I think Dante is sucking up to me he's playing all the music from Wickstrom and Dobras to get onto the um get into the segments which I don't mind I'm easy to suck up to I like that so that's good this is another song from the current EP out by Wickstrom and Dobra Search which from a on your, your favorite streaming service. All right, let's go to the phones. Even though we're listening to his favorite song, I'm sure Dan Swanson wants to talk fishing. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Um, I got some thoughts, but I know you want to talk to us about blades, jigging wraps, and spoons. But first,
4: are you on the water right now? Yeah, I'm up at Glendale right now, and we are catching some walleyes up here. Uh, we're. I've got them on uh, a shiver minnow, and uh, our buddy Gary Darling, who you know pretty well, is catching them on a small spoon. So we're just yeah, we're actually think, casting casting, and ripping them back. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that. Well, that's,
1: you know, I mentioned to somebody earlier that, you know, jigging spoons were just the fall go-to bait you know, if you go back a couple decades ago. And then there was a lot of tournament fishermen, throwing glide baits like a shiver minnow, a jigging wrap, a a Johnny Darter, and and they weren't sharing it. And that kind of got out, and over the last decade, that has really taken off. In addition to, blade baits seem to come in and out of style, and they're in the middle of a resurgence. But especially at this time of the year, it can be a really effective tool, can't it?
4: Oh, it definitely is. The fish right now are scattered on a flat. So when you're casting and ripping with a glide jig, which you know something like a Johnny Darter, or a or a small spoon like the the Johnson Splinter spoons, and just ripping them across the bottom and just snapping, snap jigging them. Basically, you can cover a lot of water that way. But as we start to transition into fall and the water starts getting a little cooler, because right now we're sitting about uh, sixty five degree water temp, so that you know the the fall bite really hasn't started happening. You know, with the the shad getting shocked and and that whole event that starts to happen. So. That's going to happen like any time now. From now until December, that's like my favorite way to fish. Oh, and you're right. You
1: know, we've had I talked about this earlier in the show. A lot of times we get some sudden, pretty intense freezing weather prior to this, and our temperatures, we've had some cold days, but for the most part it's been generally fluctuating a little cooler with the nights getting cooler, so the water temperatures are coming down, but I would think 65 degrees at Glendale right now is probably – extremely warm for this time of the year
4: it definitely is usually we're down in the 50s at this point so so the bite's a little different than what we were expecting when we planned on this trip yeah so you've had to adjust
1: well you know that's one of the the good things about these uh jigging techniques like uh, jigging wraps and spoons and blades and shiver minnows is the fact that they aren't just stationary below the bait presentations are they
4: no they're not um, you know the the jigging wrap was invented to be an ice fishing lure, so there was you know you drop it through a hole and you jig it straight up and down. But people have ad- adapted that particular bait to to more of a casting technique, and it, and I've heard recently that the jigging wrap is the number one seller for Rapala right now.
1: Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. And (laughs) and we're seeing bigger sizes of them too, because they're being used more and more in open water. It's really come on. Um, One of the things I've been feeling lately in the last year or two, and I don't know if you guys can confirm this or not, is that we saw spoons just being used universally for decades and fish got pretty conditioned to them. Blade baits kind of would come back into their own because they were different enough, but the jigging wrap, the glide baits really took over. But now we've been about a decade of that or more where they've really taken off. Do you think the spoons now, I think, walleyes get conditioned? They haven't seen as many spoons lately. Do you see a resurgence in the jigging spoons?
4: Well, for sure. I, I will... You know, one of the things that I like to do when when the water starts to cool and these fish are starting to set up and they're they're focused on those dying shad is one, I'm using my electronics to find the fish. I'm using my electronics to find the bait, and then I will actually start with a jigging spoon almost every time. Um, whether I'll drop it straight to the bottom, you know, snap it up and, and then let it fall in a semi slack line so it's got that nice fluttering action that falls down, that's basically mimicking that that shad falling. I don't know that they get so conditioned to it, but I'll find is if they're not hitting that, then I immediately switch to a to a blade bait and do and basically the same thing. I just you know rip it, feel that vibration, and then let it let it fall. So you might have to switch back and forth, or maybe maybe if you're still not getting bites, but you know the fish are there because you can see them on your electronics. Maybe that at that point you switch to more of a vertical presentation with a with a Johnny darter or something along those lines.
1: Now, I want to talk more about the electronics, but, but real quick, is there a technique or a mistake? You know, we talk a lot about the aggressive jigging below the boat, but when the fish are spread out and you're casting, do people make mistakes as far as cadence and the way they present these baits and that when it's
4: more of a horizontal? Well, I think the mistake that people make is they they'll snap it and then they keep the line relatively tight and it doesn't really give the the bait an opportunity to to react. So let's say you're jigging a spoon. You want to snap it and have it fall back on a semi slack line. So you still have, you can still see the line. You can see the line move if the fish hits it, but it's going to flutter. It needs to flutter down. That's how those baits are most effective. So if you have it tight, it's just going to drop straight down with no action. Um, With a blade bait, I think you get most of the behavior when you rip it and whether or not, and it, it, it can, maybe the slack line is not as important, but that to me, that's the biggest thing is that slack line. And then the same with any kind of the glide jigs, no matter which brand, if you snap it up, you've got to give it a little bit of slack so it can dart off to one side or drop back or circle around. I mean, that's how that bait, it's the, the movement of the bait falling back down is what really makes it behave uh, and trigger fish. So all of I guess the biggest mistake I think is keeping your line too tight.
1: You know, you're probably one of the most accomplished anglers as far as using and understanding electronics in this part of the United States. And you you made a reference to you would find the fish on the electronics and drop a jigging spoon. And we all got conditioned to do that, but we were using electronics for the most part that looked straight down and were giving us a history of what we had just gone over. With the new live look electronics that everybody's coming out with, and the fact that you can look ahead of you or to the side of you so much, has that changed your approach a lot?
4: It really has. Um, I can I can see fish. I can see how they react to my bait. Uh, you know, if I can if I can make a cast, and I can tell if. Uh, If I'm, if I lift my bait, if the fish run away, did I do the wrong thing? Or, or maybe I need to cast it and watch them jiggle. Um, if I'm sitting on a spot and I, and I, and I'm trying to fish under the boat and all of a sudden I'm not marking anything, I can use my forward looking sonar and steer, and steer it around and go, oh, they're over that way. I can tell where they are and I know where to cast. Or maybe I can drive the boat over there if it's in 50 feet of water and, and start vertical jigging there. So I use it a lot for that. I also, find that I'll, I'll i'll cruise along a shoreline or, or a point and i won't even make a cast unless i see fish you know on the forward i and the beauty of that is i don't have to drive over the fish and spook them i can see them far enough like a cast length away before i i get to the fish and spook them
1: has it changed your uh thinking about the actual
4: behavior of fish being able to see them live like that oh absolutely <laughs> it's amazing well you know you, you you look at it and you see the number of refusals you get now. You know, you never knew, you had never had any idea. And so maybe it's like, okay, I threw something. I could see that they're not interested in it. Maybe they followed it a little bit and then they turned back around. I can, I say, well, gee, maybe I need to change a color. Maybe I need to change to a different bait. Maybe I need a different technique. Maybe I need to snap the jig more. Maybe I need to snap it less. Um, it, by watching the, w- the way the fish react, it can change how you fish, and I I definitely have caught more fish because of it. All right. Well, a couple
1: things before I let you go. I know you were out on a horse tooth a couple times. Are we are we getting close to
4: the fall bite there? No, it's it's still sixty five, sixty six degrees. So we're we're catching smallmouth on on drop shots pretty well. Um, actually, believe it or not, the top water bites pretty good. We caught caught us eighteen. And a 17-inch smallmouth yesterday on uh, the number 75 Berkeley Choppers, choppos. So um, there's a topwater bite still going on. So it hasn't turned into that dying shad bite. That's where I think we're maybe two, three weeks away before that really takes off. Was
1: that topwater bite in the backs of coves, or was that out on the points?
4: Out on points, yeah, on on points and the I never left the
1: main lake. And that's typical of this time of the year. You don't get too many fish that are back there. So you think both Glendo and Horsetooth probably are just on the cusp of taking off? I
4: think so. Yeah. Well, at least for that style. I mean, we're we're catching some decent fish. I got a I got a twenty inch fish in the live well right now. So so we're catching some good ones. But but they're it's not the same. It's not that typical vertical fishing jigging spoon on the edge of a river channel or a drop start drop off quite yet. All right. Well, that's
1: all great information, Dan. I want to thank you for joining us. And, of course, you're part of the Fishful Thinker team. And say hi to Gary for me. I need to get out in the boat with both you guys again. Yeah,
4: we'd love to. Uh, Gary's Gary's busy right now, but um, I think in a month or so he might not be.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I heard that, that he's taken on some <laughs> new responsibilities. Uh, yes, he doesn't yes. learn how yeah. to say no, Gary. <laughs> yeah, learn how to say no, Gary. <laughs> all right. All right, all right, guys, we'll talk soon. Bye Thanks. Later. Uh, bye. Bye. Great, great anglers, Gary and Dan. I go way back with them in the 90s when I was with the Fisherman. And they used to do seminars with me and um they went on to fish the professional walleye trail. Just great anglers and great sources and great guys to spend time in the boat with too. Just good people. We're gonna take a time out. We come back, we'll wrap this up. And also I have some questions for Dan Jacobs if he's in the studio, all that and more coming up on Terry Wicksham outdoors and on one oh four three the fan. Dante you're going out of your way to play Wickstrom and Dover's music today I really like that I'm going to have to talk to your boss about giving you a raise (laughs) and uh, let's wrap a couple things up here real quick Um, if if you're heading out fishing a lot of boat ramps are closing so check and know before you go but we are really transitioning to fall now and things are going to take off in the hunting world and the fishing world so stay tuned every Saturday because we're going to keep you up to date right now is uh, Dan Jacobson's studio? I'm here, Coach. How are you? You know, I'm doing okay. Well, I'm doing as good as I can after watching that Thursday night game.
0: <laughs> yes, that was, that was not a good display of football. And you're oh, um, was... now you've been watching football for approximately what? 87 years. Uh, where does that rank? <laughs> yeah, where does that rank on bad football? That may be the most
1: unwatchable game, other than some CU games. That I've ever seen.
0: Oh, get your shots in and see you uh, from high atop your perch in Fort Collins. I see Terry. <laughs> I'll tell you what, on a professional level, um, I remember some
1: Vikings games back in uh, the day when they had the purple people eaters and stuff. And their defense would just dominate a game and their offense was OK. And they'd be low scoring games, but they were low scoring because of incredibly good football. On the defensive side of the ball. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't some good defense, but that was just anemic offensively. And that's a question when we get to is Hackett, is Wilson just saying the right things? Is he being used properly, or is he that bad? Or is Hackett just misusing him that much?
0: It's been both. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give Russell Wilson the scapegoat uh, treatment of, or excuse me, allow. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give him a pass and scapegoat ha- just hack it. Russell Wilson has not played well. Russell Wilson got uh, it's it's that's old saying, Terry. Uh, you were probably there when it was written. Be careful what you wish for, right? Russell Wilson, he had to get away from Pete Carroll and the evils, you know, uh, villains in Seattle so he could come here and have every single thing he wanted. All we heard was he worked so stinking hard, he needs to have a say in the offense. They need to cater an offense to him. And actually uh, Nathaniel Hackett was getting some hard time for this because they said, why on earth did you do that play call on fourth and one? And the answer wasn't, well, I thought that was the best for the team. It was, I wanted Russell Wilson. It's always about Russell Wilson to get the you're best You're cutting look. out on me, Dan. I don't know what's going on here, but. Well, I don't know. I'm live on the air. Yeah. So- so there you're back. I yeah. hear you now. But, you
1: know, I heard most of what you said, but. I'm not saying Russell Wilson is the quarterback he was five years ago. He's probably going to end up in the Hall of Fame for how good he was first 10 years of his career. I think he still has some talent and some smarts. Maybe he doesn't even understand how he should be used because he wants to play a certain way. But when he rolls out and has a view down the field, he picks up open receivers better, and he's always a threat to run then. He's never in his whole career looked extremely good taking short drops and throwing
0: from the pocket, and that's what they're doing, and that's never been his game. Well, Pete Carroll says when you go to his left, we push him to his left. If you can push him to his left, he's actually bad. Now, if you push him to his right, maybe he's better. But he has said, you know, there has been talk about, or excuse me, not he has said, his former coaches have said, if he's in the pocket, He can't see because he's too short. He has to get in between lanes. He has to get in between the linemen. So a lot of the flaws seem to be bubbling to the surface at this point, Terry. I've been, but you know what?
1: I'm not going to lay it on Wilson right now because the play calling has
0: been unimaginative and just horrid, I think. Right, but it's fourth and one. You know, or third down or whatever and he's, he's launching interceptions in the end zone to, you know essentially that was one of the huge reasons they lost the game Russell Wilson is not playing well he's not being accurate and he's not making good decisions I agree with you but I think the play calling has really been horrid too it has you not, I, you're been not good.
1: and you're not at this point you're not going to change the quarterback
0: right but I thought Pat Shermer was the, the 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 cause of all of our ills in the world the last couple of years you mean we have another play caller and he can't Uh, Do anything either? Well, I'm sure you're going
1: to tell us all about it. I better let you go close this out. Are you fishing tomorrow? Are you fishing tomorrow? Where am I fishing tomorrow? Actually, I have a grandson's birthday tomorrow. Okay. So I'm going to be doing that. All right, my friend. I will close this up so you can get started. All right. See ya. All right. Thanks to Karen. Thanks to Dante. We got another show in. We'll let the Eagles take us to sports and Dan Jacobs on 104.3 The Fan.